0: Oh my word! Yeah, weren't they here last week? Yeah, they were. Yeah. yeah, they were here last week. Bob and Carolyn Reed are back after a number of months of recuperating, and it's just great to have them there. I mean, we saved your seats for you, and you plopped right into them. Welcome home. We're glad you're back, Bob and Carolyn. God bless you. Who is, who are, Megan, and Jeff, welcome back.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> we're so glad you're back. Pam, did we recognize you yet? You're back? Okay, we're glad to have you back again. Anybody else back and you just haven't felt welcome yet? Barbara, glad you get back. That's great. Good. How could we do tours of this place without you? That was uh, quite a topic in the last conversation, wasn't it, folks? Yeah. Yeah. That's for real. We need more people like that. Um, Anyone else want to be welcomed or you're not, you're hurt, but you're not hurt too badly that I overlooked you and I can make it up to you right now. Anybody. (laughs) Okay. We're all back. I was going to say we're all here, but I know better. Well, today's scripture is going to be taken from John 14, if you may have seen that on a previous screen, and you probably have it memorized anyway, so we don't have to spend too much time introducing that uh, chapter of scripture. I'm in a series, you may remember, or may not. Uh, The series is entitled, The Truth Is, and this is a series of messages on Christian apologetics. And as I say every time... It's not Christians apologizing for being Christians. That's not what apologetics is. It's the foundational anchor system, the systematic defense of the basic tenets of our Christian faith. And if you don't know what those basic tenets are or where they come from or why they're rock solid like nothing else is, then all you need to do, if you haven't gotten in on all of these uh, messages by the end of the series, is go back and get the ones that you didn't get, uh, either by CD or uh, you can download from our website, and you can get that systematic defense of the basic tenets of faith. It's kind of like Paul Little wrote many years ago, Uh, 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 he wrote two books, as a matter of fact. First, Know What You Believe, and then he wrote uh, another book uh, entitled Know Why You Believe. And then a few years later, the publishers put the two books into one, and now it's Know What You Believe and Why You Believe. And I don't even know if that book is still in print, but it's a great uh, fundamental book for uh, those that are trying to get a handle on the fundamental tenets of the faith. Uh, The American poet John Godfrey Sachs, uh, who lived back in the... 1800s. He was actually born in 1816 and lived for about 70 years. He based the following poem on a fable, strictly on a fable, which was told in India many, many, many years ago. So I have it on video, and um, I'd love for you to listen to this.
1: The Blind Man and the Elephant by John G. Sachs It was six men of Indistan, to learning much inclined, who went to see the elephant, though all of them were blind, that each, by observation, might satisfy his mind. The first approached the elephant, and, happening to fall against his broad and sturdy side, at once began to bawl. "'God bless me, but the elephant is very like a wall!' The second, feeling of the tusk, cried, "Ho! what have we here?' so very round and smooth and sharp. To me it is very clear this wonder of an elephant is very like a spear. The third approached the animal, and happening to take the squirming trunk within his hands, thus boldly up he spake. I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a snake. The fourth reached out his eager hand, and felt about the knee. What most this wondrous beast is like is very plain, quoth he, "'Tis clear enough the elephant is very like a tree.' The fifth, who chanced to touch the ear, said, "'Een the blindest man can tell what this resembles most. Deny the fact who can. This marvel of an elephant is very like a fan.' The sixth no sooner had begun about the beast to grope than seizing on the swinging tail that fell within his scope. "'I see,' quoth he, the elephant, is very like a rope. And so these men of Indistan disputed loud and long, each in his own opinion, exceeding stiff and strong, though each was partly in the right, and all were in the wrong. Moral So oft in theologic wars, the disputants I ween, rail on in utter ignorance of what each other mean and prayed about an elephant, not one of them has seen.
0: The blind men and the elephant. Now the idea in this little parable is that everybody thinks they know what God is like. And even though some may have it partly right, they're also all wrong. For how can anyone know what God is like when none of us has ever seen him? We're like blind people groping about. One sees this part of God, another person sees another part, and we're doing our best And each of our experiences are legitimate, but they all fail to get at the reality of what God is like and who he really is. There are, however, some problems with this delightful little poem, and I find it a very striking poem. The most obvious is that as blind and as misled as these men were, listen to this, They really did have hold of an elephant. The elephant was very much alive, very much real, really did exist. And the second thing to note is to follow the parable's intent. What if the elephant could have spoken to the men who came to see see him? What if he had spoken as God has spoken to us? What if the elephant said, you need to know this about me, and you need to know that? about me, not only do you need to experience more of me, but I'm even going to tell you how to live. I'll tell you things that you would never be able to discover on your own. What if? What if? What if there were writings of the elephant's sayings (laughs) which told what he was like? Even more, what if the elephant, fantastic though it may seem, was capable of sending a human, though one of his own Essence who could relate in personal ways what an elephant really was from the perspective of someone who knew perfectly what an elephant was and also knew what it was like to be human. You see, the blind men were all wrong, but only because they were each relying on their own efforts and their own limited experience. Now let's consider. In the Christian faith, We do not rely on individual experience. That doesn't mean we don't have individual experiences as Christians, but we don't rely solely on those. It may at times be genuine, that experience. It could be a very real experience. It could be a very close-to-God experience. It could be a very uh, inspirational experience. But we rely, and we must get this down as a basic tenet and as a foundation, a foundational cornerstone of what we believe. We don't rely solely on individual experience, but we rely on something the Bible refers to, and because of that, we call it revelation. You remember the story of Jesus, hopefully you do, asking the disciples, well, well out, there, out there in the community and in public, who, whom do people say that I am? What are people saying about me? How do they explain me? How do they identify me? And the disciples said, well, there are some out there saying that you're Elijah. And there are others who say you might be Jeremiah. And there's even some, uh, they, they think you're just one of the Old Testament prophets who's come back to life to live amongst us. You know, it's kind of similar to the blind man saying, first blind man said, he's a wall. Second blind man said, he's a spear. Third blind man said, no, he's not either of those. He's a tree. This is a tree. But then Jesus asked the disciples who they said he was. Now, whom do you say that I am? Because this is getting down to the crunch. And Peter gave this now famous reply. You are the Christ, sent one, the Son of the living God. Now I want you to listen to Jesus' reply to Peter in Matthew 16, 17. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. This is not something that Peter could have figured out on his own. It was something that had to be revealed to him by God. Peter understood who Jesus was only because God revealed it to him. And without the revelation of God to us, we would each have a piece of the truth. We'd be holding on to something that was quite likely true without knowing how that relates to the whole. So this morning, we're not going to rely on a variety of opinions from blind investigators. Today, as part four of my series The message will be entitled, One Way and Only One. And we're going to look at what God has revealed about himself. Now here's what Jesus said. I referred you to John 14. Everybody knows 14.6. For some reason, it's been relegated, all these verses, to funeral sermons. And it's about as unfunerally as any verses you can get. But anyway, let me read it. Jesus said this about himself. He said, I am the way. I mean, there, in today's vernacular, I, I could just say, there are tons of sermons just on those words. <laughs> I am the way. Or li, quite literally transliterated, it really means I am is the way. He is the great I am. I am the way. I am the truth. And I am, what? The life. Jesus made some astounding claims, folks, but never one more radical than that. What does it mean then? And this is what I want to take up this morning. Hopefully we can keep a little bit of interest in this. What does it mean? Because someday you may be asked this question. And it sure would be great to know the answer. And it's going to be a simple three-part answer, so I hope you can hang in it. What does it mean when Jesus says that he is the way to God? Well, let me tell you first, it means that you and I are not the way to God. There are two errors present in today's world which cause people to to believe that they're the way. One is the New Age philosophy. And the other is a religion of works. The New Age religion convinces some people that since they are spiritual beings, and that whole definition of spiritual beings is so different from one set of people to the next, they are in fact a god. It's being popularized by well-known people, and I'm not going to name any, but several of the movie stars, the Hollywood crowd. And I'm not just picking on them, but it seems like whatever they do gets magnified. Now, it's very appealing to a lot of people, because it means that if I am my own God, then I get to make my own rules. And and I don't want to politicize this, but that doesn't just hold for the, 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 the Hollywood set. This creeps over into things like politics. This creeps over into every facet of life, because if I'm my own God, then I make my own rules, and I don't have to submit to the rule of another God, capital G. I submit only to my own will and to my own desires. So what we have today are people who are trying to be spiritual without having any experience or relationship with any God, real God, other than themselves. And they're attracted to spiritual issues. In fact, all kinds of spiritual issues. They make no differentiation between religions or gods. All religions are good. All religions lead the same place. All religions are okay if you need one. They don't make any differentiation between good or evil. You say it's evil, but I don't. I think it's okay. They make no differentiation between conflicting ideologies or moral distinctions of any kind. As long as it is, can I say it again, in quote, spiritual, and spiritual sounding to them, it's good. So that could be yoga, that could be transcendental meditation, that can be Baha'i, that can be tarot cards, go on and on. The list is endless. You see, it makes no difference. People may be into Eastern mysticism, astrology, uh, astral projection, and feel in tune with the spiritual realm, whatever whatever they mean by that, but they do not consider Jesus Christ as an option. Now, once you stake your claim there, you are in trouble. You have to ask yourself, why are people... Flocking to these kind of philosophies. I think Ravi Zacharias has the best answer, and on most things in apologetics, I would defer to Ravi Zacharias. I want to read a quote from one of his books. He answers the question why people are willing to try anything in this world but Jesus. And here's what he says. Because Jesus calls you, listening carefully, Christian, to die to yourself. Anytime truth involves a total commitment in which you bring yourself to complete humility, to the surrender of the will, you will always have resistance. He goes on to say, Christ violates our power and our autonomy and the Check that out, make sure everybody's okay. At the heart of the rejection is resistance to the claim. Well, somebody stay. <laughs> I'm going out there and preach. <laughs> I just, let's settle down a little bit, because I want you to get this statement. If you don't get this statement, wow, you've missed the heartbeat of this message. One thumb up. Okay. Any truth in any time truth involves total commitment, in which you bring yourself to complete humility, to the surrender of the will, you will always have resistance. Christ violates our power and our autonomy. And at the heart of the rejection is resistance to the claim of who he is. People just can't accept who he is. End of quote. Now, the attractive thing about the New Age religions, if you're into one or you're thinking of going into one, is that you get to be your own God. You are your own Savior. You make your own way. You make your own rules. It's especially true of those who worship success. Even within Christianity, there are those that that want to be their own Savior. I call it the heresy of legalism. And as I think of it, And I think of my own past, and I think of my own history since accepting Christ and really committing my life to him. And as I think of my years in ministry, and as I I was doing notes for this message, I even wrote beside it, please, God, forgive me. Not only for getting sucked down into that vortex and not getting out of it, but uh, affecting a lot of other people, stuff that I did that I couldn't undo, all in the name of legalism, what a great Christian I was. Legalism does not really bow the knee to God. And I wish somebody had looked me straight in the eye and said that X number of years ago. The legalist believes that instead of being in debt to God, God's in debt to him or to her. He believes God owes him something because he believes he's earned his way into heaven. He's going to earn his way by his own efforts and by his own merit. He kind of acts this way. Give me the laws and I'll obey them. Right to the T. The legalist says to God, if you have anything more you want done, give it to me, I'll do it. It's kind of sneering, if you will. God forgive me. At the mercy of God and the forgiveness of God, and the grace of God. Matter of fact, people brought up in that system often, often, often have great difficulty accepting the mercy of God, the grace of God, and practicing, I hope you're listening, the forgiveness of God. Those are harsh terms, but it's true as I'm saying them. See, the thing is for a legalist, everything's beneath him. Everything. Is something that I can criticize, something that I can judge, and no matter what the score at the end of the game, I win. Because I'm better. The legalist cannot admit he's a sinner. He might say the words, but he doesn't live them as if he means what he's saying. It seems beneath him to even think that. That person feels like a very good person, a great Christian. But how can you be a great Christian and not depend on Jesus Christ to be your Savior? Because if you're thinking in your own mind, you can just do what you want to do and do it the way you want to do it and call it Christian and God's going to be pleased with you and you don't really need to accept the grace and forgiveness of Christ. You become your own Savior. And you're saved then by works. And it's all about your pride. And pride cannot admit that it needs help. That's a good one for your notes, and I don't have it on the screen, and you ought to write it down. Pride cannot admit that it needs help. I didn't say pride will not admit. Pride cannot admit that it needs help. Mm. Pride cannot even admit that it needs help. This is how far down it goes. Pride cannot admit that maybe, maybe my testimony is really less than it should be. It really doesn't live up to man's standard. You see, legalists, I've found, and since for so long I, I used to say I can criticize them because I are one, They're really people who try to be Christian. Everything's Christian without Jesus. Everything's Christian without the power of Jesus. Everything's Christian without the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because I am so self-sufficient, I can handle it. I can do it. Just give me more rules and I'll keep them. Now, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, here's what the Bible is talking about when it talks about, and I think we have this on the screen. The the Bible talks about these people. And it says, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. This is New Testament, folks. This is the Apostle Paul writing. He said, those are people that have a form of godliness. If you saw them and heard them and watched them in their church activity, you'd think, man, they just dropped out of a cloud. They just came straight down from heaven. They're God's appointed. They're here on a a mission. But they deny in their lives, in ministry, they deny the very power of God. Now, I'm going to say to you, you are not the way, I am not the way, You can never be the way, and I certainly can never be the way. Here's why. Because Jesus is the way. Can I say something else about that? It's very simple. He is the only way that any living being can ever come to God Almighty. You're not God. I'm not God. Not one of us will ever become God. So we can't be our own savior, and if I could be good enough, do good enough, do enough stuff that merits entrance into heaven, and I could do that on my own, then let me make another historical statement. Not hysterical, historical. Jesus Christ died on the cross of Calvary for nothing. That was just a bad drama if I can get myself to heaven. It wasn't even necessary for him to come to this earth and die in your place or mine. And it's not necessary for you to believe in him since you believe in yourself and you're going to be your own God. But Jesus said, wait a minute, I am the way. So if we claim to be the way, it boils down to this. Either Jesus is right Or we're right. Second thing that I want to touch on, the question is, what does it mean when Jesus said, I am the way to God? Somewhere, sometime, somehow, somebody in this life is going to ask you that question. And if not, prime the pump a little bit and get them interested. Maybe they'll ask you that question. Now you've got one part of the answer because you say to them, I'm not the way, you're not the way. The second part of the answer is, other religions are not the way, or other faith bodies of faith are not the way. And this is the real tough one, because this is the one, uh, the real objections people have about the Christian faith center in this point. I'm not afraid to tackle it, and I hope you're not afraid to listen. They say, no, that's too exclusive. That's exclusivity and excludes the claims of all other religions because they are also the way. They have their own way. They do. The idea floating around is that Christianity should say that it is one, it is one of the many ways. That's what's called radical syncretistic pluralism. It puts all religions on a gigantic spiritual salad bar and invites people to come and take a little of this and a little of that, cafeteria style, whatever part you like, reject whatever part you don't like, and then pour all over it your favorite dressing. A meal of just lettuce or just bacon bits alone, the reason goes, would be unappetizing. You know what? It's the variety that makes it interesting. What if the reality is that only one of the things on the salad bar is actually food? And the rest has no lasting nutritional value. Or let me use another illustration. I think this one will hit very close to home. (coughs) <coughs> let's imagine. I wish it could be, I wish we could do more than imagine this. I really do. My heart just cries. I wish we could. But listen to this illustration if you would. I think it really illustrates something. Let's imagine, and let's keep hoping, that through genetic therapy research going on at several universities like Yale and and, 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 and certainly right here at Jackson Laboratory, there is, let's just say, wouldn't it be something? that there's a sudden breakthrough in the search for a cure for cancer. No, no, no. Here's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a completely non-invasive, completely non-invasive, painless, one-time treatment that would reverse the spread of any cancer, and cancer would simply, in my own words, dry up and go away. Just think, no more need for relay. Wouldn't that be great? Really, I mean, some of you like relay and, and you like the toasted marshmallows, but wouldn't it be great to have no relay because there was no reason to have one? Let's imagine <coughs> this is not a partial cure for a particular strain of the, of the disease just for some people, but it works every time in every situation for every person. Stretch your mind with me. Because you know, some of the other therapies to counteract this are are worse than the disease itself. And we've watched it inflict, some of them inflict at least as much suffering. And other organs of the body are affected by the treatments and none of them has a 100% cure rate, none of them. So let's imagine everyone on the planet has cancer. Expand your mind, think about it. Everyone on the planet has cancer. So that means everyone on the planet is in need of a cure. Would it be close-minded, narrow, or arrogant for the scientists at Jack's to say, oh, the genetic therapy way is the only way. You have that. You won't have cancer any longer. Or would it be the kindest, most loving thing that they could say, born out of concern and compassion? Others might still have confidence in what they've been used to and they'd be free to try dietary cures and radiation and acupuncture and everything else and no one would stop them if that's what they chose to do. But would it be wrong to try and convince people that there was only one cure? Would it be wrong to believe that this is the only true cure for everyone infected in this whole world? Would it be wrong to do that? Would it be wrong to tell people if we knew it was true? No. There's a cure. Would it be wrong to tell them? No. No. I'm dying. Help me. No. No. No, no, no. That's no. This is two more minutes, Bob. I'm fast asleep. No, this is yes, okay? You okay with the illustration? I thought this was the clearest illustration I've ever seen, really. Ever thought about it. I know you agree way down deep in your heart. That's not to say that a few of uh, the other religions of the world don't have some truth in their teachings. That's not to say the other religions in the world don't have some value. That isn't to say that there isn't another religion somewhere that carries a decent moral code. Neither does it say that the followers of these other religions may not be pretty decent human beings, good citizens, etc. But the question isn't on any of those subjects. The question is this. Are these other religions and bodies of faith the way to God Almighty? Are they the true cure for our sin and our separation from God? Because let me tell you something. It may not be cancer, but there's a worse disease that every living soul on the globe is infected with, or with which you are infected. That sin and separation from God, everyone has that. Hello? Hello? Having some truth is kind of like holding the tail of that elephant. And believing, you know all about the elephant. When humans try to figure God out, it's like the blind men reaching for an elephant. It's a wall! I know, he's, he's like a spear. I know, he's like a hose. But the Christian faith is not about people reaching for Christ or for God. It is about God reaching for us. revealing himself to us and giving us the scriptures and coming to us and lo- giving himself for our sin. Quite different, huh? Oh. So why would Jesus make such a bold statement that he he's the way I think it's wonderful that he said he's the truth and the life. I thought those would come first, but no. I'm the way. Later on in the book of Acts, describing how the Christians were acting and they grouped together and so on, someone called them the people of the way. I don't think there's a better description of born-again believers. We're the people of the way. I am the way. I am the way. So the third part of your answer, and we need to say this, is that when Jesus says he's the way to God, here's what it means. Is everyone listening? Class, are you with me? What did the geometry teacher used to say? Turn on your mental switches. Here is the third thing you need to say as to why What what Jesus means when he says he's the way to God. Now, everybody's with me? Here we go. Because Jesus Christ is the only way to God. QED, quadrat demonstratum. That's all you need to know. Now, here's what we're left with. I'm simplifying this for my own sake, because if you get it too complicated, I'm the first one out. It's either Jesus Christ is who he said he was, or he's a complete and total fraud. And a whole lot of people have followed that fraud, if that's the case. When he said further in John fourteen six, no man, nobody, comes to the Father, except through me. Nobody, no exceptions. He never went on to explain that. He never unsaid it. He never corrected himself. It was never commented on again. He just said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Now, there's a truth. This series is entitled The Truth Is. There's a truth. Well, by the way, if it isn't, then it's one of the biggest lies that's ever been foisted upon humanity. There is no in-between. And folks, this is what we've got to understand. Unquestionably, the, scripture, the Scriptures teach that Jesus Christ is the universal Savior. He's the Savior of all mankind. The witness of the church throughout the ages has been that Jesus is the only way to God. The Scriptures teach that, that He's the universal uh, Savior. The witness of countless millions of people down through the quarters of time attests to the fact That after placing their belief in Jesus and receiving Him into their lives, they have found His claims to be true. Have you? Have you? Have you? Have you? Have you? Yeah. And I have too. After searching those claims, hearing those claims, listening to others, i found those claims to be true. I can without fear of contradiction, tell you Jesus Christ is no fraud. He's no fraud. It's not, he's not a scam artist. If we reject the fact that Christ is the only way to God, we're not only rejecting the words of Jesus himself, but we're rejecting the witness of Scripture. We're rejecting the proclamation of the historic church. We're rejecting the testimony of all those who've experienced the reality on their own personal lives. And the interesting thing here about other religions is that none of their leaders ever claimed to be God. They lived, they died, they're still dead. Certainly none of them have a God who comes to earth to visit the human family in human form in order to die for them in a redemptive death and then rise from the dead. See, all of these are claims of Jesus and his followers. Here's what Peter proclaimed in Acts 4.12. He said, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we, what's the next word, Must. must be saved. Will we believe our, those words of Scripture? Are we going to go by politically correct doctrines of the day? Have at it, if that's what tickles your fancy. I'm going with the true, eternal, unbounded word of the living God. Maxie Dunham, the once president of Asbury Theological Seminary, told a uh, of a, a, a conference he was in, a huge conference on world evangelism, several speakers from different parts of the world talking about the importance of religious pluralism, the need for interreligious dialogue. Some even talking about the negative impact of Christians witnessing to people of other religions. And the dangers of imperialism in churches, which had a passion for, uh, for evangelism and saving souls. And Dunham said this, we heard Jesus is our savior, but not necessarily the savior of mankind. And that the paths to salvation in other religions are just as legitimate as the way of salvation in the Christian religion. But then a certain bishop from Pakistan, a country where Christians are definitely a minority who suffer greatly for their faith, he stood up and with conviction and passion he said these words. He said, ladies and gentlemen, if what all of you are saying is true, then I must go back to my homeland and tell the Christians in our land that they won't have to die for their faith anymore. See, the belief that Jesus Christ is the only true way to God is not just some abstract theological consideration. It's the belief that Christians for 2,000 years have based their lives on. And they have suffered and bled and died for that belief as many are still doing today in many parts of this world. So Acts chapter 4, 12 Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind. You read the rest with me. By which we must be saved. Let me ask you, thank you for reading that. Let me ask you, by which we must be saved. There's no other name. I want to ask you this question. What difference then is the belief in this verse making in your life? Church, if we're not going to go out in our world and live Christ, tell me what's the point of coming in here and singing of Christ. The religious pluralist says, no one has the right to make an exclusive claim because there's no such thing as absolute truth. He's absolutely wrong. This is a very popular notion today. Uh, George Barna, the pollster, indicates nearly 75% of Americans do not believe in absolute truth. I once heard of a professor who was saying to his large philosophy class, he said, I'm just going to start off by saying there's no such thing as absolute truth. And one of his bright students put his hand up and asked the question. He said, so, sir... uh, Do you really believe that? And the professor said, absolutely. (laughs) That'll click in about 2 o'clock tomorrow afternoon. (laughs) But again, the claim of Jesus Christ runs counter to the assertion, Jesus declared, I am the truth, and again, not a truth, but the truth. And as Christians and believers and followers of Christ, we stand firmly on his teachings. No one ever spoke and taught like Jesus. But ultimately, the value of what he said uh, stands, the validity of historical record, which is subject to investigation and can be examined. All other beliefs are based on the teachings and ideas of those who were nothing more than mere men. And there's not much recorded, and there's not much there. And some of those supposed leaders of certain religions were completely... I mean, they were illiterate people. They didn't read, they didn't write, they didn't know how to uh, command their own language. It's, It's unbelievable. Now here's the chief miracle that substantiates the claims of Christ from everything else, all other religions, and any other belief system in the world. The chief miracle that substantiates the claim of Christ is the miracle of his resurrection. Everything else could be the same, exact same. If you don't have that, your house is going to fall down. It's just not built on the rock. It just doesn't have the proper foundation. And by the way, let me just say, here we are. Here we are. Clearly some 2,000 years after that great event, and no one yet has ever produced the body of Jesus. Some religious philosophical leaders have come and gone. They've risen, they've fallen. But none have ever come back from the dead to carry on the work like Jesus did. Pretty unique, huh? Not only because Jesus stands alone in this respect, but because all the Old Testament predictions and prophecies and incontrovertible evidence for the historical fact of the resurrection, what were they? The empty tomb, the post-resurrection appearances, the transformed lives of the disciples, not to mention the continuation of Christianity for 2,000 years in the face of great persecutions over centuries of time. Here we are! And we're still going! Really? Really? Here we are, and we're still going. I know, people weren't real excited when he walked out of that tomb either. No, don't feel bad. They couldn't explain it. They didn't say, so this can't be really, this is an apparition. It didn't really happen. Couldn't it couldn't have. We saw him. He was dead, dead, dead. Not just sort of dead. He was dead, dead. And I'm sure they were shocked too. And you were just shocked by what I said. But you know what? After 2,000 years of time, here we are. Still going, still believing, still serving, still knowing that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. The work Jesus performed and continues to perform points to his being the embodiment of absolute truth. His teachings being an expression of absolute truth. His claim to be the only way to God is an absolute truth that one cannot afford to ignore. People just take it or leave it and ignore it along the way. You can't ignore this only to your own peril. But Pastor Bod. Let's lighten up a little bit, okay, Bob? You're you're too serious about this subject, and I know you're trying to make a point on this series. Uh, Just answer this question for us, because I think I know the answer. If you don't, I'll take over. Don't all roads, anyway, lead to heaven? Have you ever heard anybody say that? By the way, ever anybody ever heard that? Oh yeah, hands are popping up now. Yeah. The pluralist asks that question. The person who believes no one has the right to exclusive belief asks that question. More and more people are adopting that logic. And the impact of that is being felt increasingly in our society. The logic of the pluralist. And can I just stand before you as a minister of the gospel, and proudly so this morning, to say this world... is changing and transforming faster than any of us can even imagine. At almost 70 years old, I'm now starting to get a little reinterested in the study of end times. I'm beginning to see the dawning. You say, you think we're living in end times? I don't but i think we're living in the dawn of end times all that needs to happen now is for the return of christ and the lid's going to blow off this thing we have no idea what it's going to be like and when we read scripture now and read a newspaper the same day you get real serious don't throw your hands up in the air and oh, i don't know what we're going to do we got listen he's still in control he still loves you with an everlasting love. Jesus died on the cross for you. And if you've accepted him and walk with him and love him, you don't have anything to worry about. Oh, you may get your head cut off, but I mean... <laughs> how do you lose if that happens? You, say, you still fly? I can't believe you go in airplanes and fly. I say, if she goes down, I'm going up. Huh? How do you lose? I mean, the New Testament is full of that teaching. Paul even said it. He said, for me to live is, that's what we should be doing, is Christ. But what is dying? Gain. For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. Wow, we don't think of it that way, do we? Because we think like the pluralist. Here's what the pluralist says. There's no such thing as one way. No such thing as absolute truth. You sure? Absolutely. There's no such thing as a right way to live. Oh, really? That explains a lot about our bewildered world today, doesn't it? You say, I don't know where the moral code went. I don't know why these people, they don't live by value. Because they don't have any values, friend. If you don't have this to build your life on, you don't have moral values. Sorry. You can be just a really, 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 really good person. But this book still says there is none righteous, no, not one, in the sight of God. We don't have our own righteousness. Our righteousness is a gift of God through Jesus Christ. So the claim of Jesus runs counter to the logic of pluralism. (laughs) And it's illustrated by the words of the Lord in John 14, 6, where he tells us, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Could could that be any plainer? No wonder he didn't have to say it twice. Nobody's going to the Father except through me. Boom. Into that discussion. Now let's move on to something else. So, that question. Don't all roads lead to heaven? Here's your answer. First, let's look at where the pluralist begins. He begins with the assumption there's no such thing as one way to God. His claim is He says Jesus' claim is very exclusive. Jesus said he alone is the way. And then Jesus emphasized the fact that no one comes to the Father except through him. Some say that Jesus would never make a claim to be the only way to God because he's so loving he wouldn't ever say something like that. They maintain that the man who taught the golden rule was incredibly tolerant, and he would therefore never force himself on people that way. In that sense, they're right. Here's why. Because Jesus does not force himself on anybody. Right? Did he force you to believe? See, he lays out the truth, and he waits for you to act on it, or me to act on it. But the notion that Jesus ever made any exclusive claim to being the only way for one to connect with God simply reveals one's ignorance concerning the claims of Christ. These people are talking about something that they're not familiar with at all, and they don't know the character of Jesus, and they don't understand how God operates, but they're going to put it in their own Simple language, and they miss the mark every time. Here's an example John 3:36. Jesus said, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life. For God's wrath remains on him. So it all boils down to this: People want to justify their desire to live life their own way, they don't want to live God's way. Even good Christian people, they get to a point and it's like, I'm just going to go my own way. Oh, good. Good luck with that. All religions. Well, let me back up. If Jesus said he's the only way, you can't get there except through him, and he is the only way, then life apart from him really is no life at all. And the Bible says in Proverbs 14:12 I alluded to this a little bit ago. It says this, there is a way there is a way our way not the way our way that seems to be right or appears right to man but in the end that way what leads to death. That's not too pleasant. So stay tuned you're about to encounter a teachable moment, which I'll end with. There is one thing all religion has in common. All religion teaches that man, through his efforts, must reach up to God. And that's where the message of Christianity and the claim of Jesus Christ is unique. For Jesus taught that he, God, through his efforts, has reached down to man. The claim of Christ and the claims of all religion move in opposite directions. And let me just tell you something, if you haven't figured it out. If you're traveling in opposite directions and expect ever to arrive at the same uh, uh, destination, I have some bad news for you. That's not going to happen. And it sums up like this. Jesus made it abundantly clear. The way to heaven is through him. The way to uh, discover absolute truth is through him. And the way to live life to the fullest is through him. The truth is, it's through him. Jesus Christ, one way, the way, the only way. One way and only one. Do you know Christ? That's the question. Do you know him? Knowing him, you will know the absolute truth. Knowing him, you will know the meaning of life. Knowing Him, you will know the joy of sins forgiven and a home in heaven. Do you know Christ? Here's what I'm going to say to you. If you don't know Him, or you're not sure, or you want to know Him, and you want to come to Him, I would just love to open a conversation with you and help you take your first step towards God. So speak to me before you leave today. Or at your earliest convenience. Or if you don't do that, pick up the Connect card in the back of the seat in front of you. And just put your name, and you don't have to put all the other information. I don't need to know your grandmother's maiden name and all that stuff. Just your name and what your interest is. And if you need to come to Christ, whatever the decision you're making this morning, make it clear and then put it in one of the offering boxes or pass it to me or someone near you, or just leave it on your seat before you leave. Can I pray with you? Let's quiet our hearts before God. Thank you so much. Heavenly Father, thank you for your truth, inexhaustible truth, undeniable truth, incontrovertible truth. Thank you that it's eternal, and yet thank you that it's personal. Thank you that it reached down for us, and our hope is found in nothing less than the shed blood of Jesus and His righteousness. Thank you that even though we know in our heart of hearts we cannot claim any form of righteousness on our own, He is our righteousness. And that makes us right in your sight, Heavenly Father, and we praise you for it. Thank you for those stunning words, those brave words. Thank you for those all-encompassing words, those words of invite, those words that are just so wrapped with, with power. When Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, no man comes to the Father except through me. Lord, I pray that this might touch the heart of someone here today, and someone might turn to you. Someone might begin that wonderful journey that ends up in a relationship with Jesus. And for all of this, we'll give you praise. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to ask that you just listen and watch this short video.
1: We've all faced one, a threshold, a point of decision, a moment of choice. Do we stay or do we go? What awaits us on the other side? Will we cross the line from guilt to freedom, fear to faith, from doubt to trust, from darkness to light, from death to life? so you're here at the threshold what will you do